Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. There was a time when you could get by in software development without learning how to use source control. But that time is long gone. You have to understand how it works, period. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the basics of source control so that you understand why and how it works. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I have been writing a lead magnet for my second book. So that's going to come up on the website. You know, it'll be on Simple Programmer basically to get people on the mailing list and get people excited and interested about it. It's like um, how to get to working remotely in four months. I'm still kind of working on the title. I've got almost all the text done and then I'll go back and revise the title. So I've been fighting with that all week. It's been like pulling teeth, dude. It's so short. and I've written like 20 pages plus in a week and it's not really burned me up. And this one's like four pages and it's awful because I'm trying to be real concise and it's absolutely killing me. So yeah, concise is not your strong point, right? <laughs> like it takes me a lot longer to write something concisely. The other thing I did is I switched to private lessons in my Russian class, which is, you know, we changed our podcast recording night basically kind of partially to accommodate that or not really to accommodate. That. I guess this accommodates the podcast schedule change, but it's a lot harder when you're in there by yourself. There's not somebody else in there that's taking part of the teacher's attention. And so you're just getting that focused work, but it was kind of time. I got tired of watching people come in and, you know, stay for two or three weeks and then they disappear and they never come back because it's hard. It was getting discouraging. And so I was just like, you know what? I mean, that happens. We've seen that so many times with developer launchpad too, where, We'll have people come in for a few months and then just disappear. Yeah. And then come back, you know, six months later, learning a different language. And that's the other thing is how many people that were coming in had studied another language before and not gotten it either. So like there have been a number of people with Japanese studying the background and all that. So yeah, it's way better, but it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. It's cool. How about you? Well, like you mentioned, we changed recording night. We're now recording on Tuesdays. That's been a big blessing for me. I mean, I realize this is our first Tuesday recording, but man, I've been stressed since they changed our day in the office from Wednesday to Thursday. Like we picked Thursday nights because I wasn't in the office on Thursdays. And at the time, your last job, you were working from home on Thursdays as well. So like, we're both at home and then they changed my day in the office. And then I also, after I moved and started getting involved at this church down here, the worship team practices on Thursday nights. And while I'm not on the worship team yet, I do go to their practice and run the soundboard every week. So it's just been Thursdays was get up at like 4.30 in the morning, go into the office, come home and either record before going to practice or record after going to practice. And just like Thursdays, I started at 4.30 in the morning and sometimes didn't get done until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And I think it was starting for me at 5.30 and going until 9 or 10. So Yeah. Speaking of practice, the worship team was practicing the two songs that I'm learning recently. So I got permission to take my acoustic guitar and play along with them. I was sitting up in the booth, just sort of playing along, but it was cool. I was able to keep up, especially with the song that I learned first, the slow song. I was playing and occasionally mixing the sound. Uh, it was not a production-worthy mix, but it was good enough for practice. It was funny. Our uh, media lead, she's in charge of the keyboards, the synth and the keyboard player. And, uh, she came up to me. She's like, hey, could you push the keys up so I could hear her playing? And I just sort of handed her the headphones and I put it on solo for the keys. So like the only thing coming through the headphones was the keys, but like the main sound system, you could hear everything else. She puts the headphones on and she's like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's that's how we tell like if it's like something that we need to work on on the mix. 
And she's like, that's really cool. So she got to actually hear the keyboard is just solo through the headphones, but like could like put one ear in and one ear hear the main mix. So um, that was really cool. I was able to play the entire slow song with the guitar. Still working on my rhythm for the fast song and very fast. Maybe not for someone who's been playing guitar for longer than I have, but you know, for me, it's it's pretty quick. So I'm I'm learning that. That's cool. Let's go ahead and get on into our book this month. So chapter six of The Healthy Programmer, Get Fit, Feel Better, and Keep Coding by author Joe Kuttner addresses a common problem among developers, back pain. It starts off talking about the invention of the harpsichord, speaking of keyboard players, and how musicians had to develop proper techniques for playing the keyboard without pain. Since then, back pain has become the number two reason for doctor visits. The first section of this chapter talks about unit testing your core muscles. In it, Kuttner discusses the Krauss-Weber or KW test of minimum muscular fitness. This measured strength and flexibility of large muscle groups. Kuttner points out that in clinical trials, people with back pain were unable to pass the test. Then after time exercising, were able to pass the test and experienced reduced or no back pain. However, the people who did not continue to exercise had a return of back pain years later. He goes on in the next section to describe the anatomy of the back. Well, it's a rough description. He does attempt to explain the concept of referred pain. Basically, the nerves that innervate the muscles of the back also contain sensory innervation for areas of the back, but they don't always correlate to the same location as where the muscles are. In the third section of this chapter, Kuttner describes several exercises that President Kennedy used in the White House to help with his back pain. And then in the final section, before the retrospective, he talks about developing better ergonomics and posture. While posture is dependent on the individual, he gives a few common rules to follow. These include supporting your body, distributing your weight evenly, and keeping your feet on the ground. Throughout the chapter, he emphasizes exercising as a way to strengthen your core and prevent back pain. I'll have a link to the book we're going through in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? We've got an iTunes review from Soulfire777 saying, Great content and engaging hosts. Really appreciate the insights, tips, and transparency you guys offer every week. I especially love the episode on perspective perseverance or perseverance. (laughs) You guys can't know how much I needed to hear everything you guys talked about that day. Thank you both for what you do. (laughs) Perseverance. Man. (laughs) That one just keeps coming back to annoy Will. I love it. That's great. And is that like a British pronunciation? No. It's just me mispronouncing the word. Okay. I didn't know for sure. I mean, because sometimes you do come out with stuff and it's like that. That's because I watch way too much BBC. Yeah. But uh, thank you for the great review. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. I think we're still on Tumblr. Is Tumblr still around? I think so. I think Uh, they lost a lot of market share, though. Yeah. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. (laughs) Sorry, that still makes me laugh every time I read it. If you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. In most development organizations, source control plays a critical role in just about everything. 
Far from simply providing a place for code to be stored securely, source control in modern organizations underpins things like software build processes, automated testing, deployment, and it might even have legal implications. Source control has become a critical part of all software development and is one of those things that you're expected to understand from the get-go. In addition to being a critical underlying technology for software operations in general, proper use of source control can provide an organization with significant advantages when it comes to the ability to maintain software that is already in use. It makes it far easier to respond to critical bugs even if your team was in the midst of developing major new features that aren't ready for prime time yet. Source control also facilitates software teams. Without it, it quickly becomes very difficult to merge code written by multiple developers. Good source control systems make sharing and modifying code possible in a large team. Additionally, controls on such systems make it easier to control the code that is being released which not only helps with stability, but also makes releases easier. As always, we're taking many of our definitions from Wikipedia because they kind of say it better than we can. And then we're going to explain these things in basic English. But we're not going to do the normal thing that we do where we do all the definitions and then do the rest of the outline because I tried that and I got up to like T on the, you know, (laughs) and it's just, it was ridiculous. So not going to play that. Instead... We're going to organize this outline based on the typical process to make a feature branch, do some work, and then get those changes into the master branch so that we're not boring you to death with definitions. And we're leaning quite a bit towards Git and more towards uh, kind of the modern branch per feature type process, although you'll find a lot of this stuff applies elsewhere with other distributed source control systems. It's just that Git's the most common, and this looks to be the best way to do things currently. It's what you're going to find it in most places or some variant or derivation of it. Yeah, or something like Visual Studio Teams, and then you've got the Git-based repository behind that. Yeah. So speaking of repository, the first thing we're going to talk about is the code repository. I love how you just did finger guns at me. Yeah. That was hilarious. That was, that was, a, that was a great transition. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know why I did the finger guns, but uh, it seemed fitting. So... <laughs> Sorry, I'm off my game tonight. So code is stored in a source control repository that can be thought of as a directed acyclic graph. Now, that's not a perfect way of thinking about it, but it's good enough. The trunk release branch or master reflects the version of the code that is currently in use in production. And we're going to call this the master branch because that seems to be the nomenclature right now. That's ever shifting. I'm sure they'll come up with something else. A commit to the master tends to do things like trigger automated builds, unit tests, uh, makes deployments run, those kind of things. And it has to be controlled very carefully to make sure that code is vetted before being released, right? For instance, if you're Facebook and you have a junior dev in there that just showed up today, the first line of code he writes shouldn't get committed into master without being reviewed. Otherwise, it's on everybody's Facebook page. Yeah. And the way we have this is... You can't commit directly to master. Same here. You have a feature branch. You commit to that branch. And then you PR. And then, yeah, do a pull request into master. And that pull request has to be, there are certain people who can review those pull requests. And for some projects, I'm a reviewer. For some, I'm not. Yeah. For ours, the developers... We do a feature branch for the thing we're working on, and then we do a working branch off of that. And the branch policy on the feature is also such that you can't directly commit to it. So you commit into your working branch and then PR into the feature branch. That gets reviewed by the other developers. And then once it passes all the tests, it gets, you update, you you pull master and then you update the feature branch and then you roll up to master. And that PR gets approved by QA and by people that are in charge of like PCI compliance and that kind of stuff. So there's like a two, there's two gates, but that's basically what you're doing, right? It's like, you want to make sure that code doesn't get out into production that should not be in production and probably that doesn't even get into a QA environment if it shouldn't be, because there's costs associated with that too, right? You're tying up a server, you're running a build pipeline, you've got people going and looking at it. So you're going to have to be a little bit careful. Yeah. Uh, Well, I, I only actually told you part of our process because we also have 
Like that's to get your code into master in dev. Mm. Our features is basically master in dev. Yeah. It's master in dev to get there. And then when it's ready, you can say, hey, this is ready to go up to QA. It's then gated by QA who can say, hey, I'm not ready for this to come up yet. They say, yes, it moves just what was said, hey, it's ready to move up. And then QA does it. They say, hey, it's ready to go up. And then there's another gate before it goes to either UAT or production. And ours is also configured with like your feature branch policies. You know, you set the number of reviewers and like the merge policies and two or three other things. And then we also go to the build pipeline and we have our own individual servers. And so if you're working on a feature, then you set your server to to receive updates to that branch when they go out there. So it automatically crams it through the pipeline. And I mean, I think this is probably pretty common with Azure based builds anyway. Mm But yeah, you you have a whole lot of controls around this stuff. It's not like it used to be. Like I remember I broke a e-commerce site on Black Friday by pushing a stored procedure directly to the production database Ooh. as a junior dev. Yeah. Right. And that is a world that does not exist anymore. Like <laughs> companies are not going to put up with that. So you can thank people like me for, you know, getting out there and taking one for the team and, you know, sweating. <laughs> so anyway. Back to the whole code <laughs> repository thing, because there's other stuff around here. We refer to the current version of master or its head as the most recent commit to master, mm-hmm. right? It's like wh- whoever committed to it last, that version of the code, that's what's out there and that's what gets pushed. Yeah. Branches occur when you need to snapshot what is currently in production, modify it, and be able to make changes to it that will eventually end up in master. There will be a number of other branches that branch off of a particular commit to master, not necessarily the head. These are often referred to as feature branches. Right. So you go in, you make a feature branch off of the head and you start working. Somebody else pushes to master. Their push doesn't override your stuff. Like you're isolated from those changes. And again, it's a gate control mechanism. They can't come through and mess you up. You can't go through and mess them up. Now, one thing that you can do is. You can pull update your branch. Yeah, yeah but it's intentional. Yeah, it's not forced on you. Right. Like a Microsoft update. Oh, dude. Let's not even. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there because that's going to be like 30 minutes of just ranting. Uh, yeah. Couldn't help it, man. I know. I saw the shot and had to take it. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. So if you're not doing frequent deployments of the content of master or you need to maintain old versions of the code, so like if you have a desktop app, for instance, that you're, you know, you're deploying updates to people, but they can kind of pick when they get it and you've got to support old versions or like a, a long-term support version of your app versus the bleeding edge alpha, then you'll often have feature branches basically for those. You know, you get a release out and you go, okay, I'm now going to make a feature branch off of that and any bug fixes that need to go in there go in that feature branch and we work them into master later. So you will have that. Like it'll still support this, I guess is the best way to explain that. The other thing is is some version control systems also let you tag or label a commit. So you could say, okay, this one went to master. This is version 1.1 release. Yeah. And so you can go find that instead of using the, uh, the commit number, which is like this, I forget how many digit hexadecimal number which is useless Mm -hmm. because you're never, you know, like there's not a whole lot of people that memorize hexadecimal numbers. Yeah. So, and like we have build and release numbers. Yeah. That, you know, are refresh every day. So it's like the day and then dot one. That's the first build of the day, that sort of stuff. And that's very convenient because I can say, all right, well, I put that fix in, it was in, you know, release 23 and QA is like, Oh, well, we're only on release 19. So yeah, we haven't pulled it in yet. That's why we don't have it. Yeah. We kind of, we don't use the uh, version numbers so much as how far behind they are on master. And there's like, there's multiple steps on the QA and I mean, it's involved like some of this stuff that, that happens in DevOps and Mm -hmm. it's probably a good topic for an episode or two sometime other than now. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm just not feeling it today. 
So commits tend to be atomic and express terms of changes to all the files in the repository. Yeah, um, and this, this seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? Like people naively, when they're starting to think about how source control works, they think that it's about changes to files, and it's not. It's changes to the set of files. Yeah. You know, in other words, it's a, you know, it's a directed acyclic graph of changes to this wad of stuff that makes the app, not mm-hmm. to individual files. Because you think about how you move stuff around, you know, you move code between files, you delete files, you add files, you rename them. There's so much stuff going on that it has to be treated as a unit. So that that's the unit that it occurs under. Well, so now we're going to uh, dive into the feature branch. So you start off and you're like, okay, I have a task I got to do. Here's master. What do I do? You know, assume you've pulled master down to your box. To begin, you're going to make a new branch for your particular chunk of work, right? Because you don't want to edit directly on master because then you're a bad person in a failure at life and, you know, a flight risk and basically radioactive. So don't do that. And not like cool superhero radioactive. Yeah, just like... Yeah, like bad, you know, radiation going into the sea radioactive. It's just, you know, you're useless. Now, what you might do, you know, what you're going to do most of the time is you're going to, you know, take the head and you're going to branch off of that. But sometimes for patches on a previous release, you might branch off of a previous commit on master or another branch to do your thing. But basically the idea here is is you get a branch that is your branch that you're working on. And you could do this locally or within the source control system, depending on what you have. So like I'll make my feature branches in Azure and then I'll pull them down. And then I do my working branch off of that because I have to set branch policy and all that other crap in Azure for the, for the DevOps side. So I do that there and it's one place, um, even though it is slower. Um, <laughs> you, know, you can do it either way, but if you're doing branch per feature and you have additional pre-branch configuration, you're probably going to want to do that at the source control provider, kind of like I do, rather than locally, because then you'll have to do stuff locally, and then you'll have to push up, and then you'll have to edit the branch and fiddle around with it. It's just a lot, a lot of extra work. Now, if the feature branch itself is going to be tested by QA and you have automated deployments, then you're probably going to also want to make a branch off of that for your work and do smaller sets of work there. And then you PR back to the main feature branch And the PR acceptance is what triggers the push to the QA environment so that QA can control changes because you don't want them running a test suite and you push something up and it breaks their tests. You don't want a cranky QA person. Like, that's a bad life. Yeah, and for for those of you who are confused by all of the uh, acronyms, PR is pull request and QA is quality assurance. Right. Let's talk about a pull request real quick. I know it's not in the outline. You have a set of changes. You want to push them into a branch from another branch. That's a pull request. You're saying, hey, pull this code, cram it in this branch. And wherever this branch goes is essentially what that is. So, I mean, I think like way back in the day, they used to call it a patch. And now they they realize that that's, that nomenclature is not quite right for what you're doing. Because sometimes it's not a patch. It's a part of a new feature. And people are getting confused, so they don't call it that anymore. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, and I already talked about, you know, kind of how we do it, and you talked about how y'all do it at work. And there's a lot of variance in here, so you're going to have to learn what your organization does when you start messing with this stuff. And I've seen places where they had a branch for dev, a branch for test, and then master was production. Right. And it just got pushed up to each branch. You could look, and of course, in these places, they were usually very small dev shops with one or two developers working on one thing at a time. Usually, it was places that I got hired on to uh, to come in and help with one thing or the other. Yeah, and there's still a lot of those out there, and there's also a lot of companies that have a master branch, and everybody's committing into it, and then every so often they do a release. Yeah, They go through all this, you know, like they stop operations for like two weeks and QA all the things and it's awful. And when they have a critical bug, they can't fix it in time. They have no mechanism to do that. The best policy really is to break off into feature branches. Now, how granular you get with that will kind of vary. 
Yeah, it really depends on your build pipeline and like how much DevOpsy type stuff you have and who has the control where. Yeah, but eventually the feature branch will merge back into master. Right, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> you know, unless your company goes under. Um, yeah, so... Or, I mean, I have seen where you develop a feature branch out and it goes through testing and then you find out from your product owner or some of your stakeholders that what you built was completely off from what they had intended. They just gave you really bad acceptance criteria. Yep. Well, they probably were really good acceptance criteria for what you were building, but it wasn't for what they wanted. I've also seen it where you'll build stuff out and you get a feature branch and it's ready to go. And they go, you know, this really doesn't fit in this product. And so we would like to make another repository and move it over. I've seen that too. Yeah. Yeah. So like it varies a lot. But theoretically, it eventually ends up in master. <laughs> yeah. Just understand that when we say theoretically, <laughs> we we mean at least like 97% of the time. Yeah. So once a feature request is completed, then you're going to do a pull request to get that back into master so that the person in charge of the master branch can look it over, you know, whatever revisions have to happen, whatever uh, change control has to happen. So if you've got a PCI, Sarbox, Several other, you know, there's a lot of different legal things that have to happen with certain kinds of code. So, like, if it touches financials, somebody has to kind of sign off on it and go, yeah, this code's acceptable and it doesn't do anything weird. Because if they get caught and they find out that, oh, yeah, this company, you know, they've been losing money because they didn't implement a control properly, the company officers get in trouble. So, this tends to also be a place that legal gets into the mix and where product owners and documentation people and tech support and like everybody and their mother is in this process upstream here. So anyway, you'll PR back into master and theoretically, eventually it'll clear this entire gauntlet of other people and it'll get out there. Usually there's some type of gate control system like Will was talking about. Uh, And like with us, we have a gate for your code to get into the dev and then to move up those further gates. So like there's QA gate to move into test and to move out of test. Yep. Um, there's a product owner gate to move into UAT and out of UAT. There's several gates to move from UAT to production. Right. One is one is through the product owner and then through operations and stuff like that. You'll tend to work on and test the feature branch in isolation because it makes it easier to reason about things when they don't work. I mean, single responsibility yeah. here, you know, unit testing, unit being the key word in that. Uh, yeah. that and well, the other keyword is testing, uh, well, yeah. which, which has to happen too. But yeah, like I've worked on code bases where all the developers had their own branch, their feature branch, and then they had a common database and lots of of business logic was in the database. And so somebody would change a stored proc and your stuff breaks and you don't know if you did it or they did it. Yeah. Because you don't know, Oh man, that's, that's frustrating. It's super duper frustrating, you know, and it gets even weirder. Like if they're overseas and so they're asleep when you find out that it's broken and you can't wake them up, what do you do? So you definitely want to have, a separate feature branch. It protects you and it protects the rest of the development team so you can actually isolate problems and apply the scientific method to the things that happen. Now, we kind of discussed this a little bit, but master may be merged down into the feature branch. Right. I like to do this before I make a pull request just to avoid conflict. So I'll pull master down and I will test it, run through the test myself to make sure something that someone else has pushed in there doesn't break my code. Yeah, we kind of do it a, a little bit different. So we'll we'll do the PR into our feature branch and not pull master. Of course, we pulled the feature branch from the head and our mm-hmm. feature branches are very short-lived anyway. And then it goes up and usually there's, you know, it goes in front of the design people, the QA people start writing their automated tests and they start just like manually going through and, and checking things. And if it passes muster there, then I make a branch off the feature branch, merge master down into that, and then do a PR back up into my branch. Mm -hmm. And then they go forward with more tests and make sure I didn't break anything. It's just, it's a way of isolating who screwed up so that you can get it fixed. 
and the other thing is QA is doing a whole bunch of stuff in that in that mix too. And so they need those controls for something that they're doing. And I forget what it is in that process. So they do it a little bit differently. So the idea here is that you get multiple levels of code review and change control. And so this can keep changes from being automatically deployed anywhere before they need to be, you know, like anywhere being somewhere that puts costs on the company. Mm-hmm. So that includes to a QA machine for that matter. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about doing the work with the feature branch pulled down to your local environment. You get to start working. Yeah. Theoretically, you'll start sometime really soon after that happens, but other times, maybe not so much. If commits to the feature branch end up resulting in code getting deployed, you're probably going to want to work in a branch off of that feature branch. I'm going to call that the working branch because that's kind of how we do it. Just because that feature branch does a lot more stuff and we want to control what happens there. During your work, you're going to periodically commit to your working branch. This makes it really easy to roll back changes locally if you need to do so. You also push the working branch up to the source control server. That way it gets in the backup set. That way if your computer blows up, you get another computer instead of redoing the last three days worth of work. Yeah. Typically we don't have as many people working on a feature at a time. Our feature branches are branch it off, you work on it. It's like a story. It's more like a story branch than a feature branch. Yeah, that's kind of how ours are. But some of the stories get a little bit big and they have multiple people or you have, you know, they're kind of long running because they're stuff that just takes a while. Like the last three that I've been on, I think took a total of like 18 days, 18 work days. Because it's awful entity framework stuff that makes me never want to use an ORM again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, say most of the I'm trying to think most of the feature branches. We've had a few that were a little longer lived, but most of them were maybe three or four days. Yeah, um, that's what some ours might have lasted. Are. Yeah, say so some might have lasted a whole sprint. I think only one or two have ever lasted across a sprint. And yeah. that was because it was like it got started and we had if I remember correctly, this is one where we had issues with the acceptance criteria where we were like, we weren't sure what they meant. Like we got in there and realized, hey, this made sense when we first were, when we reviewed it. But now that we're in the code, it doesn't make sense. And so we had to wait on that process. You know, that happens sometimes. Well, the other reason we do the working branches and we'll break off sometimes multiple working branches. So you break off and you do one and you you know, do the PR back up into the feature branch, it gets accepted and goes on. You make another branch for some more work. And that way QA can do all their stuff because we have so much automated testing around everything. And so like there's other code that's happening dependent on you getting this out. So the the more quickly you turn it around and give them something to test, the faster the whole thing proceeds through the system. Yeah, that makes sense. We're still working on building our automated testing in a lot of places. So Ours is pretty insane. I really want to get in there and Look at that. That's really neat. Yeah. I love having good testing. Like it is so much better. (laughs) That's cool. So once you're done with a set of work in your working branch, you push that up to the source control system and then you do a pull request into the feature branch if you've, you know, branched off for this. So it's the same thing that your feature branch would do into master. It's just a level down. It's also not a bad idea to regularly push that working branch up so that stuff gets backed up because people back up their source control. And theoretically, they test that the backups work. Hope so. The other thing that can happen is if other people are doing their own working branches off of the same feature branch, you may need to periodically update the feature branch and merge it locally with your working branch before you do a pull request, right? Because it's changed since the last time you messed with it. And so you need to make sure that they didn't break your stuff and vice versa. That makes sense. So what a pull request is, is basically it's the set of changes and a notification to say, bro, go in here, look at this, make sure that it's right, and then it can go on up. You make sure you tell other people so that they can code review. And it also just kind of stops automated processes from just grabbing stuff as soon as it hits. Now, this is a really good place to insert integration testing and code quality control as well. So when something hits the feature branch, you can push it out. You could run automated tests before the QA people ever get on there. And also you could do uh, code quality checks. So like in C-sharp, you know, we use FX cop and we'll look um, and it'll have all these rules that say, hey, here's all the stuff that you're doing wrong. Ours is a little bit anal retentive, but, you know, it, it does work. You know, it's, it's not a bad place to do that. 
the other thing uh, that you probably want to kind of be thinking about here too is you wait to do integration tests, like to write new ones until stuff is actually up in a feature branch because it's less volatile by then, right? Because you think about how much programmers refactor and they go, oh, I'm going to rename that endpoint. Well, somebody's got this big orchestrated integration test, renaming an endpoint is extremely irritating to those people, (laughs) right? So you don't want them doing that until the code on your side is stable enough and isn't changing and then they can do their thing. So this is where you insert that, essentially. The other thing is that tests are managed with source control. Are your integration tests not in the same code base? They are not currently. Okay. Which is unfortunate because I wish I could run them locally instead of waiting for the Azure build pipeline, which currently is taking 37 minutes, which is a really long time. <laughs> it does, I was just thinking about scroll that. Bar. Um, because with your unit tests... They're in the code base. They're, because they're in the code base, if you change the name of a method or something, you know, it can change. Well, with Visual Studio, it, you can change it throughout the entire... Right. Our integration tests hit API endpoints. Yeah. And so they're okay. rest, rest endpoints. And so like if you change the name, like you know when it breaks. That makes sense. Yeah. So it, it you want to avoid as much of that as possible because, I mean, that's expensive, right? The QA person now has to drop what they're doing and go back and fix it. Or you have to drop yeah. what you're doing and go back and fix it. So you don't write integration tests until it's in the feature branch. That makes sense. I, I follow that. That's like... Some of the biggest confusions I've had with when I've worked where we had a separate front end talking to a an API, a web API backend. One of the biggest confusions was in those endpoints, getting things like the difference between an endpoint that is called gets data versus get data. You know, because you may have a conversation with the UI person and you say one thing, they hear it. A different way than what you said. Yep. And we do also have front-end tests as well. So like there's stuff in our Angular code for all the spec testing and all that, but I don't think it actually hits the endpoints directly. Mm. It just checks all the other stuff. The UI tests I've seen in Angular, they have their own like... Um, Mock data. Yeah. Given that you've gotten the thing up into the feature branch, all the tests have passed, you're good to go, right? Well, you're not done. Once the feature branch is tested, you also now have to start considering how you're going to move this critter to master. Because it's become a critter now. Yeah, You know, I call lots of stuff critter. I and I don't I really know why. It. Like, that's actually been pointed out more than once this month. I'm not really sure what the deal is there. Um, I do like the word. It's versatile. Um, it's like certain profane It's a critter. Words. Yeah, it's a critter. It's just a thing. It's a, you know, it's a noun. It's a moving <laughs> noun. So unless your feature branch is extremely short-lived or if you're the only person on your team or if it's Christmas break and everybody else is home, it's pretty likely that your master branch has changed since your feature branch was created, right? Because other people are pushing in there too. Mm -hmm. And this means that you get to deal with my favorite thing in the world, which is merging. Although it's usually not bad if the code base is big enough and people like stay in their lane (laughs) on stuff. But you always end up with that, like that one guy that goes crazy refactoring stuff. And then you try to do a check-in and there's like 400 merge conflicts. The deal here is, is that you don't want to have master in a broken state while this is happening. So you're going to have to merge on your branch and then get it up to master. Mm-hmm. Preferably before the next person breaks all the things in master again. So there's this nice feature and you can... With most repositories, uh, Git-based repositories, you can view how far ahead or behind you are on master. Right. You want to not be behind master when you merge into master. Right. You want to pull master down. You can be ahead. It's like you can be, it's interesting. It's like it threw me off the first time I saw this, but like 30 commits ahead of master and 15 behind master. Yeah, it's like, it threw me off until I realized, yeah, it's like, oh, right, someone else has committed to master. So I pulled master down, merged. Thankfully, there were no conflicts in that merge. And then I was 30 commits ahead of master. Yeah. Well, actually 31 because it's a new commit when you merge it in there. So, 
Yeah. No, so, so, you know, like, like you said, you got to merge master in. And so there's kind of a process for this. And here's kind of how I go about it. I pull the latest version of my feature branch down locally because, again, there could have been other people in there messing with it. I don't know. Yeah. I pull the latest version of master locally. I branch off the feature branch for the merge and switch to it. So I make a new branch, switch over to that, and then I merge master into that branch, fix all the conflicts, you know, all the crap that broke because there's always something. And then I push that up and do a PR back to the feature branch. Once that gets approved, I, you know, then we do a PR into master and it goes. And so that lets us catch a lot of stuff because the other thing that happens is, is the automated tests run again after it goes back up to the feature branch. Oh, nice. I like that. That's a good idea. Dude, they make sure. It's like, it's, I have relatives that'll kill roaches this way. They stomp it, but they stomp it like four times. That's how I feel like our testing process hits our code. (laughs) They want to make absolutely sure that the problems are not coming back. And so that's kind of what they do. And so you have that, that whole. No, that's, that's really good. I'm impressed by that. Yeah. Um, I've not seen a lot of places be that thorough with their testing. Yeah. Most of the ones I've seen don't test at all. That's what users are for. So I like this. It's a lot easier to sleep at night. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I totally get that. That's cool. So let's talk about the thing that Dante could have never mentioned in the Inferno, and that is merge conflicts. You're going to get these, right? Like when you're merging branches, eventually something's going to happen. You know, some piece of code changed and yours also changed. And now you got to figure out which one to take. Yeah. Or both or neither. (laughs) (laughs) If you're really unlucky, it's neither. (laughs) And you're like, (laughs) typically your tools are going to let you compare the changes and select one or both to include in the new version. And you're going to go through all that whole process. And depending on the tool chain you're using, fine, you know, you do that. But you also, once you get this done, you need to run your app and you have to run all your tests, especially if you had any conflicts, because you're basically writing new code when you're merging. You're not typing it, but the code has changed. Yeah. And it's changed by human interaction. And so it's going to be imperfect. So you got to test. It's even more fun when you have ORMs in the mix and something decides that the snapshot file that Entity Framework is using needs to be merged and it doesn't do it correctly. That's happy times because you don't find that for a little hot minute. That's a pain. Oh, yeah. And that's what I've dealt with like three times this week already. This is why I don't like Entity Framework because we don't use it. And so I had a conversation with a lead developer one time who was wanting to switch over to it was the the problems you're complaining about it she was using though the things that that does as like hey see it does all this for us we don't have to do this i was like yeah but let me tell you about these problems you get (laughs) well you end up with multiple sources of truth and when you have a source control system you're going to learn really quick when you have source control in the mix and you're doing proper branching that having more than one source of truth for something is real bad because they get out of sync. Yes. At some point you will get nailed with this. Yeah. Yeah. And so like I've been fighting that all week. It's awful. So you got to be really careful about how you handle merge conflicts, especially in regards to the rest of the team. So, you know, you got to note all the conflicts and, Go find the owners of the conflicting code and consult with them. Like even if you fixed it, now when you do a PR, they need to review it. If you know people own a certain area of the system, it's like, okay, they this dude wrote this import process and some of us have touched it, but he wrote it. He's got to review yeah. that now if you touched it. Yeah, that makes sense. So that it's his fault when you broke it. <laughs> Let's be honest here. This is CYA stuff. You got to be really alert for regressions in places that call into the code that had conflicts as well. It's really easy to get burned with this, especially if you're doing something like JavaScript where you don't have the type system protecting you as much. And so you might be returning something that's not shaped the right way and nothing catches it. Yeah. Of course, you should have unit tests that do that. But yeah, that's a whole nother thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Now we're going to go over some general rules with source control just for yourself. First off, and we've kind of hit on this quite a bit, you want to prefer short-lived feature branches to 
long lived. Like I said, I've seen places where, and mind you, it was just a couple of developers working on one small project at a time, but they had a dev branch where that they might branch off if they were like doing something drastic. Yeah. And then back in, but that was it. There was like a dev branch, a test branch, and a master branch. And those were like basically forever lived branches. Right. Forever lived. Does that make sense? Yeah, they live forever. They're Highlander. Like you got to cut the head off the branch and then it, wait. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) somehow that metaphor just didn't, that was a malaphor, I guess, not a metaphor. Oh, like it, a malaphor. Yeah. Have processes that gate any entry into a branch that deploys to a machine that's used in production or testing. So in other words, like don't have automated workflow to push stuff out if pushing stuff out can cause problems. Like have some kind of thing that stops that from happening and then you can let it go and then have a repeatable process for the deploy after that. But always have control of that. And mind you, your dev server is used for testing, for developer testing. Right, theoretically, because developers test. Yes, so uh, what I'm saying is if it automatically deploys to dev, it needs to be gated. Right. Because otherwise you'll stomp all over other people. They'll stomp all over you. It's yeah, just, it's, you know. It's a pain. Yeah, it's like ancient Trust Greeks me. making wine. There's lots of stomping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, another thing you need to do is you need to delete feature branches once they've been abandoned for a specific you know period of time so that you're not cluttered, so that you're not seeing a branch from two years ago out there that has no relevance now. And even if you tried to merge it into master, you're, you're looking at a week, right? Mm-hmm. Like these things are short lived. They need to die because they're short lived. Like once they're done, once they're in master, get rid of it. I've seen uh, some source control systems where when you set the pull request to go from the feature to master, you can say, you can actually delete. set it. Yeah. Yeah. I do that too. But yeah, like that's that's something that's now built into these systems to go, hey, look, this is a this needs to be done. The other thing is is you only commit completed logical units of work to the actual feature branch. You can do whatever you want with your working branch. But when it goes up to a feature branch, you don't do something halfway. Yeah. Also don't include multiple things on your commits unless they're like Small. So I've seen people get into trouble with this where they'll they'll have a bug and they'll fix it and they'll fix two or three other things. The two or three other things, you know, fail QA and the bug all of a sudden becomes critical. And now you've got to drop everything to get these other things fixed so that you can push that bug up. Yeah. Or you got to cherry pick and it, like it's just not, you don't do that and you don't have that problem. What I've usually seen happen here is someone gets in to fix a bug they notice another thing, they notice another thing, and they forget to commit the fix before fixing the other things. Yeah, and you know the stashing system will help too. Not that I've ever done that. Yeah, I haven't done that today because um, yeah. <laughs> stuff wasn't really moving that well today. Um, so there you go. Another thing, don't commit generated code. So like if you're in .NET and you have like the T4 templates that generate your wrapper for your database, don't commit the output of that because that's just noise in the commit. Yeah. Now, I will say an exception to that maybe occurs if you're also source controlling your database, right? Because mm-hmm. now it's a component. It's just another language. But if it's a database that's considered separate from the app, you know, and you're generating off of that, then allow the person that picks the thing up to regen themselves. Yeah. It's just, it just cuts down on the noise. Also, you should commit very frequently and push to a working branch in the actual source control system off of your computer. Uh, This gives you backups. It makes rollbacks really easy. So if you screw up a lot, this is a way to fix it. I worked with a guy that lost a year's worth of work, including stuff that had been deployed on client machines for six months because he was not pushing up to source control. Don't do that. That's expensive. You really shouldn't leave the office without checking in and pushing up to something that gets backed up. You know, that way a coworker can take over if you have a heart attack. The only time I don't commit and push, because like, you know, you can commit and not push it up to a backup. But the only time I don't commit and push is if I'm doing some kind of training. Or if if I did something that I'm like, I kind of hate what I did and I want to think about it till tomorrow morning. Yeah. 
and I don't want it in the source control system where somebody pulls it and goes, this guy's an idiot. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like, there's a little bit of reputation management, but most of the time, yeah, it's going up there. Another thing, write commit messages that make sense. Yeah. Now, I have been very guilty of writing commit messages that are ugh and arg. Yeah. Because it was like, I committed it, pushed it, it built, and I had forgotten to do one stupid little thing. Yep. And you know, this was early on in my career, and I, I won't say I didn't get in trouble for it, but I did get it. It ex, was explained to me politely why I needed to have better commit messages. Oh, see, I straight up got mocked. <laughs> they're, they're like, "Hey, look, Will's a pirate." Okay, <laughs> so I got mocked. All right, I was, I was, you know, trying to be, you yeah, know, PC about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I shouldn't do that. I know. Straight up, I got what I deserved. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so another thing is don't commit large binaries. So like packages, you know, any DLLs you're using, you know, those kind of things. Images is maybe a little bit fuzzier on that, like yeah. static content. But, you know, stuff that gets compiled and is going to be changing a lot. If you commit that stuff up there, you just put a bunch of crap in your source control that's the next person is going to have to download that. So <laughs> yeah. you and I had an interesting situation uh, early on in this podcast because we had the Dev Launchpad website in Dropbox and we had a very similar problem because you pulled node packages, which you know the size of the node modules directory compares favorably with the mass of a black hole. And so Dropbox was taking like eight hours to synchronize. You'll create yeah. the same problem in a source control system pushing binaries and packages up. So don't do that. Run static code analysis tests and other sanity checks before submitting a pull request. Yep. You know, do it locally. Yeah, because yeah, otherwise you're going to get mocked. And, you know, sometimes that's fun, but most of the time it's really not. You know, try to be a professional. Never release anything to clients that isn't in source control and tagged and denoted in some way that, hey, this went out to this client. You don't do a little quick fix and build an exe and then send them the exe and then roll the fix back in your system and never do anything with it. Like, don't do that. That's real bad because now yeah. when they have a problem and they try to diagnose it, it can't be fixed. Yep. Unless you are pair programming very poorly. Yeah. You shouldn't share a working branch with your teammates. Yeah, I mean it's it's just kind of codependent, right? <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> um, it's it's just not going to work. You know, one of you is going to hate the other one. You're not going to be able to disentangle. It's bad. Don't do that. You know, you can share a feature branch, but have an area that you work in. Yeah, that's just yours. It just it'll make everything sane. And speaking of rules for teams, let's get into a little bit of that with the source control stuff. Again, as a team, watch for stale branches. If a branch hasn't been touched in a while. That indicates that, you know, it's either abandoned or somebody isn't checking in. You need to go figure that out real quick. You know, clutter invites a lot of mistakes. So somebody will pull the wrong branch, do some, you know, spectacular, wonderful edit on it, get it pushed up to a feature branch and it goes out to test and all the tests fail because, oh, this is from a year ago. Yeah. And that's a disaster. Back up your source control systems regularly, daily at the very least. Yeah, that's very expensive time that is represented in that system. You don't leave that sitting for a week and go, oh, well, we lost a week's worth of work on a team of 25 people. That's like, I lost a new truck off a bridge. Expensive. Like that that will get you fired. Don't do that. That is if your management is smart enough to know how bad that is. (laughs) Use changes in your source control system to trigger builds and deployments rather than doing it manually again, with proper pre-checks in place. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't want to have to fiddle with your build pipeline every time you push up or you won't push up. Yeah. Have consistent workflow within your team and enforce it. Right. Now, that's the big thing is, like, you can have all these things, but if they're not enforced, people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. And a lot of times it can be informal and it's just, hey, we agreed to do it this way. Here's how we're approaching it. And you go, there's other teams that you'll have people that you got to actually rein in and go, look, you know, we're putting controls on this stuff. But whatever way works for your team, you got to do that. Speaking of which, you also need to have a means of locally checking code quality and correctness before pushing 
into the build pipeline. Part of this is a compilation step, but you might have stuff like uh, static analysis tools, you know, get you some PBS Studio in there. There's stuff like your automated unit tests, automated integration tests, even maybe local uh, runs of load balancing stuff. There's a lot of those kind of things that you need to be doing locally before you push into the build pipeline. Because if you wait till after it's already gone out, you've lost an hour in a lot of cases. So give the developers the ability to test this stuff before it goes out and you'll be way better off. Enforce standards on commit messages so that you can tell what's going on. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier just on your individual stuff, but like develop team standards for what goes into a commit message. You don't want them to be too long or too elaborate, but just some basics. All right, this is what you put in here. Right. And fail the PR if the commit messages are not up to par until they put one in that's correct. Cause yeah. it's, it's, you can't really go back and fix those very easily, but you know, you got to do something. So another thing, have separate repositories for separate things. Like don't spread the same thing across multiple repositories. Don't put two things in the same repository. If you want to see weird errors, have independent parts of the system versioned separately and have different deploy pipelines. So version seven gets out on the API, but version five is all you've got on the front end or reverse it. I mean, if you want to see weird stuff happen, that is a great way to have absolute chaos monkey in your code system. Yeah. Make every developer capable of stopping a release due to code quality. Yeah. You've got a lot of eyes looking at stuff, looking at PRs. Make it count. I don't care what your salesperson says. If you're pushing out garbage, it's eventually going to backfire on you anyway, and the sales guy's going to lose out. So protect them from themselves. Let the developers put a stop to stuff going out bad. So finally, use source control for more than code. In addition to your code, you have a number of software assets that can be source controlled. Documentation is a really big one and should ship with your code. Yeah, I don't know how many companies I've worked for that had like a wiki. Yeah. That only showed the latest version. It's like, dude, people are using the previous version. Like, Mm -hmm. this is useless. And this gets even more important if you have multiple languages in the mix because you've got so many people churning up that code base. So you got to fix that. Another thing that you can put in source control is non-sensitive, and let me just say that really loud, non-sensitive configuration information. You can source control that. So this includes stuff like package management files, Docker configs. Don't include anything with credentials, keys, connection strings, that kind of stuff because you're going to get hacked really fast. This allows you to recreate environments as they were at a specific time rather than having to reconfigure it and try to hack it together so you can actually test stuff. Yeah. And it's also really nice when you have cloud environments like Amazon or Azure in the mix. Yeah. Cloud formation cloud environment too. Yeah. Yeah. Also, tests should be source controlled and live along with the code that they are testing. This is primarily because it is code itself and needs many of the same tools and tactics. This also makes it easier for developers to run some level of testing locally where possible rather than having to wait on the QA team to do it. Right. Because you don't ever want to spin that off. And, you know, like, there's not really as much of a scene between development and testing as people act like there is. Finally, sample application data is often really, really helpful to keep in source control. So in addition to being used by tests, sample data also lets developers quickly spin up a working system from scratch instead of having to make stuff up for all the little lookups every time. They just run a script. This makes it easier to completely wipe a database if you screw up and then recreate it. Yeah, and then you're you're less afraid of screwing up. Yeah. So it's easier to do things. So y'all, source control is a critically important part of any developer's workflow. Like many tools, such as development environments, package managers, and so forth, you can get by without it. However, it's generally extremely painful to try doing so. Good practices around source control make it far easier for both you and your team to do their jobs well. There is no honor in failing to use tools to do a good job. You aren't proving anything by doing it the hard way. In fact, you may be doing things poorly by doing them the hard way. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, speaking of things that make stuff easier, make stuff harder... 
a long enough feedback loop is indistinguishable from a complete lack of a feedback loop. Whereas a short enough feedback loop is indistinguishable from spontaneous correct action in the first place. So what we're saying here is tighten your feedback loops. You should always be looking to do that. Like any development process you're doing, any personal process you're doing, try to figure out how can I get feedback on this quicker and you'll do better just as a general rule. And that that applies here with all the source control stuff. That's why we do this. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Complete Dev Pod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.